Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4 today, verse 7, where Peter continues his encouragement of suffering Christians by reminding them that Christ's return is coming, that in God's timetable, the end is near. What exactly does that mean to believers today? Let's find out in this week's message, Keep Looking Up, from Pastor David Wilson. The first Peter chapter four, just one verse, verse seven. Margaret was all ready for her date. She was wearing her best outfit. Her hair was fixed. Her makeup was perfect. Imagine her disappointment when her date did not show up. An hour after waiting, Margaret decided that he wasn't going to come. She changed into her pajamas washed off her makeup, gathered up a bunch of junk food, parked herself in front of the television for the evening. And as soon as she got involved in her favorite show, there was a knock at the door. She opened it to find her handsome date standing on the doorstep. He stared at her in shock and he said, I'm two hours late and you're still not ready. (laughs) Have you ever had any unexpected company come by? How you catch them off guard. You, you come in and they say, well, if I'd have known you were coming, I would have baked some cookies or baked a cake. Or if I'd have known you were coming, I'd have at least cleaned up around here a little bit. I heard one lady say, if there's anything that upsets me, it's having people drop in when the house looks the way it usually does. <laughs> and I've often wondered, you know, we, we have company coming or a Sunday school party coming to our house and man, we clean the house up and put up stuff and I can't find it for a week. And I'm thinking, nobody, nobody lives like this. Your house isn't spotless all the time. But when we think people are coming, we do things a little differently, don't we? We, we clean up our house and we do things that we, we catch up. It's a good motivator, isn't it? When you know somebody's coming, it's a motivation to get that stuff that you procrastinated forever to get done. And you wait till the last two hours to try to get it done. But you get it done. Well, Peter is writing to a group of people who are undergoing severe persecution and going through difficult times, and he's trying to encourage them to keep on going. And he says, there's really nothing that will keep you going better than knowing Jesus is coming. And so today, Peter is encouraging Christians who are being persecuted Living, he said, living with some expectancy will help you. Isn't it a great motivator when you know somebody's coming to visit you? You, you, you know, life has some, some down times at, at, at certain points in your life. And, and when you know there's a holiday coming or there's a vacation coming or, or something's coming, it, it, it helps you live with some expectancy. I mean, I'm sure there are some university students, if you haven't already graduated, you're living with, you're just living for the day this month when you're going to walk across that 
stage and get that diploma, you're expecting to graduate. You're expecting. There are kids who know that just a couple more weeks, they're expecting summer to come. You live with expectancy. Some of you are living for your vacation. You, I, I know I'm going to go on this trip. I'm, I'm living with expectancy. It keeps you going. It's encouraging. And that's why Peter writes in verse 7 of chapter 4, just one verse, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. He tells them to keep looking up, to realize that you're not going to be in this forever. And so he, he talks about some encouraging things and then tells us how to live with that expectancy. He begins by mentioning the coming of Jesus. The end of all things is at hand. The end, telos, the completion. It doesn't mean the annihilation of things. It's not like the guy standing up here holding a billboard says the end is coming. When, when it talks about the destruction and the judgment, in some ways it refers to that, but it's more encouraging that. He's saying the completion of your salvation is at hand. You're, you're living for a time when you know Jesus is coming. It's not the, the end of the world, so to speak, but it, as, as people would think, you know, we're thinking, well, an asteroid is going to hit the earth and it's going to be the end of the world. That's not what he's talking about, the annihilation. He's talking about the completion is at hand. It's drawing near. Those of you who are graduating, you're, you see the completion is at hand. So hang in there. He's been talking about the coming judgment in the, in the verses prior to this passage and, and about the, the judge who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And, and this urgency, he's saying, listen, you hang on because the completion is coming. The end is coming. Your salvation will be completed. Jesus is coming back. It's the same urgency that was in Genesis chapter 6 when the flood was coming and Noah's trying to tell him the, the judgment is coming and, and the same urgency that Jeremiah spoke this recorded in Lamentations 4:17 about the coming Babylonian captivity it's here upon us now for those who don't know Christ the end is near the the end of all things is at hand this is a bad thing because it does mean that the end of life as you know it is about to happen we believe that Jesus is going to take the church home and that there will come a time of judgment and those who don't know Christ by the end of that tribulation time, when the second coming of Jesus actually occurs, they're going to stand in the great white throne judgment. Now, as a Christian, you don't have to worry because the wrath of God has already been taken care of in your life. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, he clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. God forgave you of your sin. You will not, you will not as a Christian face the wrath of God. Aren't you glad? You're not going to face God's wrath. It's been taken care of. But those who don't know Jesus, they're going to face God's wrath. I can remember as a kid hearing about the second coming of Jesus. Now, I don't think I'm the only one that prayed prayers like this. I'd hear him talk about the second coming of Jesus, and I, and I would say, Lord, could you wait till I get a girlfriend. 
And then later, my prayer changed. Could you wait until I get married? Could you wait until I, till we have children? Could you wait until our children grow up and have children and we're grandparents? And now I'm beginning that stage of life where the aches and pains are beginning to come. Not much. I'm still on the, I'm still on the good side of that, but but I'm beginning to realize that it won't be long I'm going to be praying with John, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> Peter is saying the same thing as, as Jesus himself said, as Paul and John said, be encouraged. Christ is coming. It's, it's going to happen. James recorded it in James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious coming waits for the produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He, Paul told the readers in Rome to wake up because the day was almost here in Romans 13, 11. To the Corinthians, he said, the time is short. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. And John declared, this is the last hour. 1 John 2, 18. Dr. George Sweeting, who at one time was the president of the Dallas Theological Seminary, estimated that more than a fourth, 25% of the Bible, is predictive prophecy. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus. There are 1,800 references in the Old Testament, and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to the theme of the second coming. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return, one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second coming of Jesus. For every prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus, there are eight prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus. So folks, I think we can keep looking up. The early church expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. And so Peter wrote with a sense of urgency, the end of all things is at hand. Keep looking up. Hang in there. Don't give up. He's coming back. Now, some of you are going, yeah, that was 2,000 years ago. Where's Jesus? They thought he was coming in their lifetime. That's the 2,000 years ago. Where's Jesus? Just a couple of pages to your right in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 3. 2 Peter 3, 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, man still living in his sin. For this they willfully forget. I like that term, willfully forget. (laughs) They choose to ignore. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It helps us understand Peter's intention. He's saying, listen, the only thing that's left in the plan of God is the return of Jesus. Now, what do you mean by that? God's plan was he's going to save mankind. He's got to become man. The incarnation, God becomes man. We celebrate that at Christmas. Jesus coming to earth, he he became flesh. He didn't have an earthly father. He was born of a virgin. His bloodline came from God through the Holy Spirit. He became God in the flesh. Nobody has any problem believing that, at least not in this room. And then the next part of his plan was the atonement. Somebody paid the price of our sin. He died on the cross for our sin. The next part of the plan was the resurrection. He rose again, conquered death, conquered sin, and had atoned. The curtain was torn. There was a a verse in that special just a moment ago about the curtain being torn. We have access to God because Jesus atoned for our sin, and he rose again. The next part of the plan was the ascension. In Acts chapter 2, you find, or Acts chapter 1, you find Jesus ascending into heaven, and, and the angel says he's coming back just like you saw him leave. The next part of the plan was Pentecost. Pentecost came 40 days later, and the, the Holy Spirit now indwells believers. You know what the next part of the plan is? The return of Jesus. Nothing else has to happen for Jesus to return. Now, I believe that there's going to be a rapture, that the church will be snatched away, and and that there'll be a time of the 70th week of Daniel, which has not occurred, will occur, and that that seven-year period, there'll be a tribulation period. I believe in the literal millennial reign of Jesus. But folks, what I want you to understand is the next part of the plan is at hand. It's the return of Jesus. And if it's been 2,000 years... I don't know if Peter's talking about a literal thousand years as a day or basically saying to God, time is immaterial. It doesn't matter. You're not made for time. And when we leave this earth, time will be no more. You will not need a watch in heaven. You won't tell time. It won't be time. But just think about it. If a thousand years is as a day in the Lord, Jesus has been gone how long? Two days. Hasn't been that long, has it? Now, I don't know when he's coming back. The only person that, only one, it's not a person, the only one that knows is God the Father. Those are the words of Jesus. But we do know that he's coming. The end of all things is at hand. No other redemptive event is planned by God. So when you're going through difficult times and the world is looking worse and worse and it looks like it's going down the tube, you just need to remember, I'm going to keep looking up because I know the next thing in God's redemptive plan is the coming of Jesus. And if I'm expecting him to come, I can hang in there. I can hang in there. Now, in light of his coming, what is a Christian supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to live? He mentions two things that I call the composure of the Christian. Some of the Thessalonians, when we're expecting the Lord to return, and in the Thessalonian letter, you find, Jesus, uh, you find Paul stating, listen, some of you quit your jobs. You don't need to do that. 
You don't need to go sit on the mountain waiting for the Lord to return. And occasionally you hear of people that will do that. They will sell everything they have and they put up billboards up saying the Lord's going to return on this day and so forth and so on. I remember back in 1988, a guy wrote a book that said 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 1988. In 89, he wrote another book, 89 reasons why the Lord will return in 89. And he quit after that. And not too long ago, I think the last name was Camping, some guy named Camping. He puts all these billboards up and says, the Lord's going to return. I can promise you one thing. Anytime somebody sets a date for the Lord's return, it's not going to happen. Unless God says it's going to happen. I better, I better clarify that. No one knows. I know there are signs. I know that people do all this numerology stuff and all that. But listen, all I know it's the next thing's going to happen in God's redemptive plan. When that's going to be, I don't know, but I'm expecting it any day. Am I going to sell all my stuff and sit on a mountain? No, there's no mountains to sit on around here. <laughs> and I'm not going to sell all my stuff. I'm going to keep serving the Lord until he comes. But you hang in there, but you can see Peter re reminding these Christians, listen, you're going through hell on earth under this persecution. Some of you have been scattered and you're losing everything you have. You just hang on because the end is at hand. That same, the same truth goes for you and me today. So what are we supposed to do? Two things he mentions in verse four, excuse me, in verse seven, chapter four, he says, first of all, you need to be serious. I call this sound judgment. Be serious. Are you serious? We use these terms interchangeably. It means to have spiritual mindedness. It's the word that means of sound mind or be clear minded, to keep your cool, to be calm. It means to be sensible and reasonable. It sees what things are important and which things are not. It means not being swept away by the next fad. And let me tell you something, in Christianity, there's always a new fad of some kind. There's a new way to do things. I'm not opposed to changing methods. I am opposed when the message changes. And today, there are a lot of people who are trying to change the message that sin is no longer sin. As long as the Word of God calls it sin, it will be sin no matter who votes it otherwise. And so you and I need to understand, we understand, I've got sound judgment here. It means to see the affairs of earth in light of eternity. It's the opposite of a maniac, mania. It's the opposite of somebody who's, who just gets caught up in the latest thing. It's, this word is used 10 times in the pastoral epistles. It's one of the qualifications for a pastor. Did you know it's also one of the qualifications for a church member? Titus chapter 2. You're to be sober. You're to be serious. You're to be of sound judgment, to be of spiritual mindedness. So let me put it another way. Now, I cannot do this, but let's um, imagine. If I could show you without a doubt that Jesus was coming back Friday, which I can't, for those of you who just woke up, I can't do that. But let's just assume for uh, illustration's sake that I know for a fact, and I've proven to you that Jesus is coming back Friday. We know without a shadow of a doubt. 
what would you do differently in your life right now besides run up all your credit cards? (laughs) Seriously, that's what this means. I need to be living like I know he's coming. I need to be thinking like I know he's coming because I know he is. He could come anytime. One man, as a boss of a corporation, was touring through his factory and he came across a clerk that was leaned up against a, a filing cabinet, drinking a cup of coffee and tossing wadded, tossing wadded up paper into the trash can. And, and the boss caught him. And the boss walked up to him and said, why aren't you busy doing what you're supposed to be doing? And he said, because I didn't see you coming. <laughs> There's a lot of people that work that way too. <laughs> Those of you who've got employees know what I'm talking about. You, you just, they're not going to work unless you are watching them. Well, we need to be working like I'm expecting, we're expecting the Lord to return. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 29 says, oh, that they were wise, that they would consider their latter end. In the spring of 1981, spring now, a young man was flown into the desolate northern Alaska tundra to photograph the natural beauty and the mysteries of the tundra. Now, you got to remember in 81, we didn't have cell phones. So there were no digital cameras. For those of you who've never seen a camera that had a roll of film, he took 500 rolls of film with him. He also took several firearms and he took 1,400 pounds of provisions. As months went by, the words in his diary changed from wonder and fascination into a nightmare. In August, he went in the spring. In August, he wrote, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. I'll soon find out. In November, he died. He died in a nameless valley by a nameless lake, 225 miles northeast of Fairbanks. And after they did an investigation, it revealed that though he had carefully planned his trip, he made no provision to be flown out. That sounds like the world to me. A lot of people have their lives planned. Oh, they've got it all planned. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to save this. I'm going to go here. I'm going here. I'm going to learn this and so forth and so on. I've got it planned. But they've made no provision to be flown out, either in the rapture or when they die, to ascend to where God is. They don't think about it. They don't even think about the future. And, and Peter is saying, listen, you need to guard your mind and protect it and keep it clear. Another way to put it is to set your mind on heavenly things, as he said to the Colossians, set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. Don't be swept away by emotions or passion. Listen to me. There's a, a movement today. Everybody says, well, just do what you're passionate about. No. Do what God wants you to do. Amen. I'm passionate about fishing. You want him to think, that I, am I supposed to fish the rest of my life? No, I'm not. <laughs> Unless you want to pay me to do it, then I'll do it. Just kidding. 
I'm trying to tell you, folks, we get so caught up in the world, and, and there's, this, there's this, this emphasis today on what we're emotional about or what we're passionate about. It ought to be, God, what have you given me the sense enough to do, and what have you given me the calling to do, and, and given me the experience and the training? Help me, Lord, to do what you want me to do, not just what my passion is. I want to tell you something. Not everything in the pastorate is my passion. Seriously, you ask anybody in the ministry, there are certain parts of the ministry you like, certain parts you don't. But you have to do all of it because God called you to do it. I hope you understand. I'm not complaining. But, but some things are easier for me to do than others it's because I have different gifts than others. And, and you, some things are easy for you and are not easy for me. Because I don't have that gift. I can make myself do it, but I'm not gifted to do that. This same word, be sober or be serious, it's the same word that was used in Mark 5.15 where Jesus met the man who was possessed by the demons. Jesus talked to the demons, said, what's your name? And they said, legion. He cast them into the swine and the swine ran off and drowned. But it says that This man was now in his right mind. Same word. He was now in his right mind. Romans 12, 3 says, We're not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think sanely, to think soundly, to bring our mind, as it were, captive to divine truth. Because the scripture says, As a man thinks, so he acts, so he lives. And this self-indulgent, deceiving, demonically influenced world is a world that is so easy to drag us off to what God, instead of doing what God wants us to do. We get sidetracked. Our minds get cluttered. So Peter says, be spiritually sane. Listen, sometimes God tells us to do stuff, but he he wants us to be sane about it. You don't just jump off and do something because you think, well, this is what God wants me to do. You've got to think about the priorities of life. You've got to think about the priorities of God wanting you to do that. And sometimes God will lead you different paths to do what he wants you to do. But don't get so caught up in the world that you're just, that's all you can think about. Is what's the world got to offer? Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. God says, think on my word. It's a balanced discipline. It's self-controlled thinking. It is saying, God, I want to think spiritually. I don't want to get so caught up in this world that I spend the rest of my time. Remember he used that term just a few verses prior? How much time have you got left? The rest of your time. I want to live the rest of my time thinking spiritually about every aspect of my life whether it's home, business, whatever it is. Lord, I know you've given me a lot of stuff, but I also know it's going to disappear. I'm going to leave it all behind. So what do you want me to do with it while I'm here in the rest of my time? That's what I'm, that's, y'all got this? Okay, good. I'll move on. Should have moved on sooner. (laughs) The, The second thing he says, you've got to have a sober spirit. 
Self-control, the word watch, nefeo means to be sober and self-controlled. It, it means that anything in life that could turn you away from communion with God must be laid aside. Anything in life that will hinder your communion and walk with God needs to be laid aside. You need to be guarding. You need to be watching. Wait a minute. If I go this path, it's going to lead me down the wrong way. It means to be free of intoxicants, which can refer to spiritual and physical intoxicants. Christians can become intoxicated with materialism. I just want more and more stuff, more and more money, more and more fame, more and more prestige. They can, they can be intoxicated with worldly pursuits and idolatry, and they don't even realize it. We can be so focused on good things that it ties us up so much we don't have any communion with God. I mentioned this several weeks ago. Have you ever seen so much competition now on Sunday when it comes to worship? Seriously. And most of the time, most of the time, unless, well, I'll just say most of the time, People say, well, I'll just miss church because I, gotta, I want to go do this. I understand that every now and then. I do. I'm not a legalist. You're not going to get into heaven because you got perfect attendance. You're going to get into heaven because Jesus saved you. But I also know that when Jesus saves you, you want to be with God's people lifting up the name of Jesus just like we did today. It's not an option. It's part of the proof that you've been saved. And I'm not going to get on that today. I could chase that horse a long way. Sometimes trials. When you undergo trials, where does it push you? What do you find for comfort and peace? If you watch television, you think every time somebody has a bad day, they got to go drink it away. Or they're going to take drugs or they're dependent on food, or whatever it might be. You know, we're not supposed to be dependent on anything. We're supposed to be awake and alert and saying, Lord, I'm depending on you. Help me to be awake. Help me to see anything. Help me to see anything that will take me off the path from you. It could be good stuff. We can be so busy that we don't ever have time for the things of the Lord. And parents, please, please don't let your children go down that path. Your, your children can't do everything. They can't. They can't be in every sport and every activity, and they can't do everything. Today, there's too many things for them to do, and they're all good. But if you have them do everything, you've distracted them from what God wants them to do. You just have to be careful. That's what it said. Be sober. Wait a minute. What am I doing? What path am I going down here? Well, sound judgment and sober spirit, this, that's, that same word is used about being sober, about watching for Satan in chapter 5. Be awake. Be alert. Where are you headed the rest of your time? But as you know, he's saying sound judgment and sober spirit are centered in the continuation of prayer. He says, in your prayers. 
Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Your Christian life flows out of your communion with God. Those of you in relationships, you have a husband or a wife or you're about to be married, you're in a relationship. Can you imagine saying the same thing to that person every time you saw them other than I love you? That, that's okay. We pray that way. We use the same phrases many times in our prayers, don't we? Amen? I'll just amen myself today. <laughs> we use this one man, one man I, I read about, he, he used the same monotonous phrase every time he prayed, Oh Lord, for the wings of a dove that I might fly away and be at rest. Every time they had a prayer meeting, every Wednesday night, Oh Lord, that I might have the wings of a dove and fly away and be at rest. Finally, one of the younger members got tired of it. On a Wednesday night, he prayed, Oh, Lord, that I had the wings of a dove, that I might fly away and be at rest. And somebody said in the back, Lord, stick another feather in him and let him fly. <laughs> let him go. Listen, folks, I want to tell you something. Now, listen, this, is, this could change your life. You need to talk to God. That's it. <laughs> you need to talk to him. You ever had it out with him? I have. You ever been mad at him? I have. I've had it out with him. I've been walking in the dark in my neighborhood, having it out with God one morning. If anybody's seen me, they'd have probably said, we need to call the police. That guy's lost his mind. <laughs> he knows when you're mad, you might as well tell him. You, th you think you're fooling God at anything? He knows when you're mad, tell him. He knows when you're sad, tell him. He knows when you're glad, tell him. He, he, he sees a thankful heart. You don't have to use thee, thou, and, and all the King James English. Where do we get this idea that we got to, thou art the greatest, thee, we, thee, and speak West Texas English. He understands it. <laughs> Talk to him. Talk to God. I read a book called two, titled Two Chairs. I love the idea. It says put two chairs somewhere. Put a chair in your house, two chairs in your house, out in your yard, wherever you want to do it. But you walk in that room and you know God's in one of those chairs. And you sit in the other chair and you sit there and talk to him. Talk to him. It has a direct bearing on your Christian walk. A person that's worried and anxious and upset all the time. Hadn't spent much time with the Lord. Now, listen, I know we all have days like that. I do too. And I'm not being judgmental. I judge myself harder than I ever judge any of you. But I do know that when you have a time with the Lord, everything can fall back into perspective because I have a lot of things in my life that, that upset me at times. And I have to say, Lord, I have to give this to you because I can't handle it. How do, what's the posture of prayer? Does it really matter? Three pastors were in an office. There's a telephone repairman working on the telephone. One of the pastors said, well, I think you ought to get down on your knees and pray. Next pastor said, no, no, I think you ought to stand up with your hands lifted up and pray. The other pastor said, both of y'all are wrong. You ought to be face down on the ground in front of God on the flat, on your face praying. 
telephone repairman couldn't help himself. He said, guys, I hate to tell you this, but the best praying I ever did when I was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. <laughs> Wherever you get serious about praying, pray. What would these early Christians have prayed about? How to stand up under various trials, how to avoid former lust, how to walk in holiness, how to purify their hearts, how to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, how to submit to government authority, how as slaves to hold up under unjust suffering, how to maintain a troubled marriage. In other words, they'd have to learn to pray about every area of their life. One lady learned a long time ago if she didn't have a little time of prayer in the morning that she would be grumpy during the day because she'd jump at the most insignificant things and her little four-year-old innocently spilt something and she went into a tirade and her little four-year-old Andrew said, Mommy, you forgot to ask Jesus to help you to be nice today, didn't you? (laughs) I can't help but believe that Peter was thinking back to his experience of when Jesus took the 11 disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and then he took Peter, James, and John even further in with him and said, can you watch and pray with me? And Peter went to sleep. And then Jesus woke them up and then later that night, same night, in early morning, Jesus denied, Peter denied Jesus three times. Folks, if we don't pray, you can't, you just, you just can't stay sober, seriously minded. You can't stay spiritually minded. You can't stay where you're supposed to be watching. Talk to God. It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just talk to God with urgency. You ever been to a football game? You know what I think? They ought to make football Two halves, two minutes long. Because those football teams start playing in the last two minutes of each half. Am I right? They're serious, aren't they? They go without a huddle. They're calling plays. They're hustling. It's do or die or win or lose. And you know what? We ought to pray like we're in the two-minute warning because Peter said the end is If it's Jesus returning or me dying, the end is near because we don't have long on this earth. So the most important prayer you'll ever pray is to receive Christ, to commit your life to God. It's not just praying a prayer. It's a commitment of your life to Jesus The sinner's prayer, ask God to forgive you. You repent of your sin. You change your mind about it, God. I want you to forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he rose again. And now I commit my life to you. However you want to say that, from the heart, God will save you. But it is a commitment. It's not just reciting a prayer. And for those of us who are Christians it may be time for us to sober up a little bit to say, Lord, what am I doing? Help me to be correct in what I'm doing. Help me to have priorities right. Help me to see the direction I'm supposed to go. Help me, Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? As the return of Christ approaches, Peter reminds Christians of not only the completion of Christ's work, but of the composure we should maintain while we wait for it to be fulfilled. 
we are to exercise sound, sensible judgment, to be alert and self-controlled, and to practice earnest and continual prayer. When that day comes, the destiny of unbelievers will be fearful, but the destiny of Christians will be fabulous. Be sure to join us again for our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.